Our passage this morning is John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. It's on page 1062 in your pew Bible. John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. And we will read that in just a couple minutes. Fred Fiedler and Martin Chambers, in their book, Improving Leadership Success, say these words, the quality of leadership more than any other single factor determines the success or failure of an organization. The quality of leadership more than any other single factor determines the success or failure of an organization. I think we would all agree effective or strong or strategic leadership is very much a popular topic these days. If you put the word leadership in Amazon.com, you'll get over 300,000 hits. This reflects the many leadership styles and managerial strategies that are out there. How would you define good leadership? Maybe you would say a good leader is someone who's a visionary. Someone who sees ahead of where the group's at and and pushes the group in that direction. Maybe you would say a good leader is a terrific example, someone who's worthy of your imitation. Maybe you would say a good leader is someone who's inspiring or maybe someone who's a good teacher who makes you want to be better than who you are. God wants us to have, of course, spiritual leaders in the church as well. And I think all of us here would say that we have been impacted by spiritual mentors, men and women of God who have encouraged us and challenged us. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a youth leader when you were younger or even a spouse or a good friend. Now, there's a lot of different leadership images in the Bible, but one of the most prominent images in the, the Bible is that of the shepherd. We see that God in the Old Testament is depicted as a shepherd. In Genesis 48, Jacob describes the Lord as the God who has been my shepherd all my life. We just read the words of Psalm 23, the the famous psalm where the Lord is described as a shepherd. This shepherding metaphor describes a few things. It first describes the comprehensive, full, total, complete care that God gives for his people. But it also describes how very needy we are. Do you know how dumb sheep are? I have a friend in Michigan, Martha, who is a... um, Well, her family takes care of sheep. And she's told us a lot of funny stories about how dumb sheep are. She she tells us a story about when, when sheep fall on their back, they essentially give up. They're not going to be able to come back onto their feet unless somebody helps them. And they will literally be on their back and starve to death and die unless someone helps them. That's how dumb sheep are. Sheep are one of the most dependent creatures on the planet, right? And God says that he is our shepherd and we are his sheep. 
Now, there's other examples in the Old Testament about this shepherding business. God calls particular people to be his under-shepherds, people like Moses and David and others. But the problem is that they weren't perfect. They failed. They didn't perfectly shepherd and care for God's people. And so there are prophecies written in the books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Micah, which look forward to a day where there would be a perfect shepherd that would come in and perfectly take care of God's sheep. So the people of Israel, for hundreds of years, they were waiting for this future shepherd, a leader who wouldn't blow them off, a leader who would not be selfish, a leader who would care for God's people. And God eventually sent him. The good shepherd came. As we know, his name is Jesus. Let's read this passage now. John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They, too, will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that this morning we would know the Good Shepherd. We pray that we would know him, we would see him. Father, we pray that you would care for your frail sheep this morning. I pray that you would love us, you would encourage us, you would challenge us, and you would do a work in our hearts. We pray this for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to give you four observations this morning from this text about the Good Shepherd. Or four reasons why the good shepherd is good, okay? And here they are. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, and then we're going to work through them. We're going to talk about the sacrifice of the good shepherd first. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the intimacy of the good shepherd. Then the reach of the good shepherd, and finally, the authority of the good shepherd. So sacrifice, intimacy, reach, and authority. That's where we're going. So let's uh, turn our attention just to the first few verses of this passage, verses 11 through 13. We see here the sacrifice of the good shepherd as he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And of course, the backdrop to this story, this parable, 
is a bunch of shepherds and hired hands which, who are working together to take care of sheep in the field. Now, sometimes we picture shepherds as these kind of effeminate men, you know, who are holding cute little sheep and cuddling with them. But that's not who shepherds were in the first century. Shepherds were extremely tough individuals. And they worked long, hard hours. They, they encountered danger sometimes. And as this passage alludes to, sometimes wolves, wolves would come and attack. And when they did, the hired hands, those that were, of course, paid, they would run. And verse 13 tells us why they ran. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So we see the hired hands, they had no attachment to the sheep. In fact, the only attachment they had was to their own lives and to money. Now look at verses 19 through 21 at the end of this section. Jesus just finished talking about giving a spiel about him being the good shepherd. And then the Jews come back into the conversation, and they're divided yet again. We see the Pharisees yet again, and they're divided. And some of them think, oh, maybe Jesus is speaking truth. And some of them said, no, he's, he's possessed by a demon. So what we see here is that the conversation continues from John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, we saw that the Pharisees were blind guides, right? They, they thought they knew what they were talking about. They thought they knew they were leading in a good direction, but they weren't. They were bad leaders for God's people, for the sheep. Earlier in chapter 10, the Pharisees are described in this parable as thieves and robbers. And here in our section, we see that the Pharisees are described as hired hands. In other words, they're looking out only for themselves. But Jesus is different. The good shepherd is different because the good shepherd was attached to his sheep. He did care for his sheep. He was interested and invested in his sheep. In fact, he cared so much that he was willing to sacrifice for them. Look at verse 11 again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For the sheep. Literally, this means on behalf of the sheep. The Greek preposition here is used eight times in the Gospel of John, and every time it's used, it's used in a sacrificial context. And so on behalf of should signal to us, this is not just sacrifice, this is substitution. The good shepherd dies in the place of the sheep. The sheep should have gotten killed, but instead the good shepherd got it. And notice he rescues his sheep, not with violence towards others. He didn't pick up sticks or stones or a slingshot. He, he didn't pick up a machine gun or plastic explosives. He rescued them by sacrificing his own life. He took violence upon himself for his sheep. This is the foundation of Jesus' leadership in our lives. This is the foundation of Jesus' leadership in our lives. Notice his sacrifice in this passage is repeated three times in verse 11, 15, and 17. It underscores this whole section. It's not just one aspect of Jesus' shepherding. It really is the focus, the central foundational piece to his leadership in our lives. 
So Jesus is our good shepherd, not primarily because he's our example of sacrifice and service, though he certainly is those things. Not primarily because he's a visionary or because he's so inspiring or because he's such a great teacher, though he is those things. Jesus is our good shepherd primarily because he rescues his sheep from eternal danger through his substitutionary sacrifice. No other leader has ever done this. No other leader will ever do this. No one. Julius Caesar didn't sacrifice himself to rescue Romans from eternal danger. Gandhi didn't do this for the persecuted lower classes of India. Churchill didn't do this for the English. Our presidents will never do this for this country. Only Jesus offers himself as the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And this is how he leads. This is how he leads us. And that's why he alone is worthy to be in the front. He alone is worthy to be at the helm of this ship. Are we a church that recognizes and stands in awe of Jesus' sacrifice for us, for his sheep? Are we a church that follows Jesus in grateful response to this great sacrifice? I hope so. So here we see first the sacrifice of the good shepherds. Next we see the intimacy of the good shepherd, verses 14 through 15. Let's read those verses. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. You know, intimacy today in our culture is a huge commodity Everyone wants to be known. Everybody wants to be loved for who they are. And so we look for friends and we look for spouses who like us for who we are, who love us just the way we are. And we feel incredibly uncomfortable and hurt when we sense that people don't want to know us or worse, they do know us, but they move away from us. It's very difficult for us to handle. But here we see that the good shepherd, Jesus, he has a special relationship with his sheep. Look at verse 3 of this chapter. The watchman opens the gate for the good shepherd, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He knows our name. His knowledge of us is intensely personal. You know, he's not put off by how dumb his sheep are. He's not put off by how dependent we are. He's not irritated by our weaknesses. He's not embarrassed by our sins. No, he he knows his sheep. He knows his people, and he's committed to us as the good shepherd. But there's more in this section. Not only does Jesus know his sheep, we his sheep, we have the opportunity to know him. The intimacy thing is a two-way street. Now look at verse 27, ahead of our passage a little bit. 
verse 27 of chapter 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So we, his sheep, we recognize his voice. When, when Jesus speaks through his word, even today, we recognize his voice. And when we, as his sheep, recognize his voice, we, we follow him. There's something particular and peculiar about Jesus' voice when it goes forth in his church. And we hear it and we recognize it. Now think of the greatest human connection you've ever experienced. The greatest human intimacy you've ever experienced. Maybe it's with a spouse or a very good friend. The best kind of human intimacy pales in comparison to the intimacy that the good shepherd offers his sheep. The gospel writer John actually gives us an even better, even even a more astounding comparison in verse 15. Look at this verse with me. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So the intimacy we have with Jesus as his sheep is grounded, is grounded in the intimacy that is between the Father and and the Son. The archetype relationship, the the, the first perfect loving relationships in the universe, the, the first community in the universe is found within the Trinity, within the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They have perfect love and community with one another. There's no better intimacy or connection than between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. You can't get any closer than that. And Jesus says here that the intimacy between himself as the good shepherd and his sheep is like that. It's astounding to me. One of my favorite Writers uh, is from the 17th century. He's a Puritan. His name's John Owen. And I love the way John Owen talks about his love for and desire for the Good Shepherd. Listen to these words The Good Shepherd can make the dry, parched ground of my soul to become a pool, and my thirsty, barren heart as springs of water. Yes, he can make this habitation of dragons, this heart which is so full of abominable lusts and fiery temptations to be a place of bounty and fruitfulness unto himself. When I read men like John Owen, I sense, I sense that they've been with Jesus. They don't just know things about Jesus, they've been with him. And I wonder, why, why don't we talk like that anymore? I know we don't live in the 17th century, so that's part of it. But why, don't, why doesn't our language drip with this kind of personal, relational experience of Jesus? You know, I think I typically go in one of two directions when I approach knowing Jesus. And maybe you can relate to me. I either move in the direction of having this cerebral, academic knowledge of Jesus... You know, I know a lot of things about Jesus, perhaps. Maybe I give a historical nod to that obscure man named Jesus back in the first century. I may even read the Bible regularly, but am I engaging with Jesus? That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is there, too. It's a whimsical or emotional approach to knowing Jesus. Full of emotions, but not necessarily rooted in biblical truth. It's a kind of knowledge 
that isn't specific or historical. It's knowing whatever version of Jesus may suit me that day. You know, the church has fought both of these extreme tendencies throughout history. The extreme tendency of rationalism and the extreme tendency of mysticism. But what we see here in this passage as we observe the good shepherd and his sheep, we see something different, something unique. We see a vibrant, personal, yes, experiential knowledge of Jesus that the sheep have. But we see this knowledge is deeply rooted in history. It's, it's deeply rooted in who Jesus the Good Shepherd is, in what he says and what he does. So we see these affections that we ought to be having for Jesus. They pour forth, but they pour forth from a biblical understanding of Jesus. It's kind of a relationship and a warmth that grows in the soil of theological reflection. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. Now, some of you may say, I don't, I don't know Jesus like that. I want to, but I don't know him like that. I'm right there with you. Well, what Jesus is telling us in this passage is that you can. His sheep can really know him. Now, some of us, we don't do well in our human relationships. Um, and that kind of gets transferred into the way we view Jesus and the way we interact with God. You know, we've maybe got abuse in our backgrounds. We struggle to trust people because we've been burned so many times. We've had rough relationships with our fathers or with our mothers, and that affects the way we see God or we interact with Jesus. Now, the beautiful thing about Christianity is that the good shepherd offers you a new kind of intimacy, a new kind of relationship. Christianity offers a, a deeply personal, a deeply satisfying communion and fellowship with the greatest being in the universe. So we see here the intimacy of the good shepherd. Number three, we see the reach of the good shepherd. Look at verse 16 with me. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has been teaching and healing and confronting primarily the Jews. His audience has primarily been the Jews up until this point. And here we see that Jesus is also concerned for a different sheep, a sheep that are in a different pen or outside his pen. In other words, sheep who are not Jewish people. We have to understand in the first century, Jews and Gentiles, they they didn't really get along. There were a lot of things that separated the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, but probably one of the biggest things, or the biggest things that separated them was their religious convictions. The Jews believed that they were the people of God and the Gentiles were not. Now, one of the biggest surprises that came along with the good shepherd coming on the scene was that God was that God was, wanted some Gentiles to be part of his family, to be part of this flock. So here we see that the reach, the reach of the good shepherd extends to all different kinds of people. All different kinds of people. My fourth grade teacher was one of my favorite teachers. All of us kids loved this teacher. She was exuberant and vibrant and energetic. She kept our attention. 
This teacher, though, she, uh, she liked one student in particular. It was, it was her favorite. You know, and she gave him a lot of attention, and she kind of put him on a pedestal. And, of course, this is really tough for the rest of us. I'm, I think I'm still kind of bitter about this, actually. And so we, the, the, the rest of the students, we, we were on the defensive. You know, we, we felt like we had to prove ourselves to her. We constantly were clamoring for her attention. It felt really unfair. Jesus doesn't play favorites. Jesus levels the playing field. Everyone is equal at the feet of Jesus. No one has a head start No one is a little better off. No one gets left out based on ethnicity or family background or age or gender or socioeconomic status or whether you're boring or whether you're awkward. Nobody gets a head start. Jesus' flock is made up of all different kinds of people. It's a beautifully diverse thing, his church. Jesus' global concern is also seen in Matthew 28, his parting words to his disciples. He says, you know these words, probably go and make disciples of all ethnic groups. This means that some from the Kham Tibetans of of Western China and the Berg people of Morocco will be brought into this one flock. Those are two unreached people groups that you can pray for. Some from the Bella people will be brought into one flock. Some from the Tamil people of Sri Lanka, that's my ethnic group, will be brought into this one flock. And there are still some on the south shore who need to be brought into this flock, who need to be introduced to the good shepherd. And of course, that's why this church exists. Jesus is the good shepherd, and his reach extends out. And he brings in all different kinds of people. So we've seen the sacrifice of the good shepherd, the intimacy, and the reach. And now, finally, the authority. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. The reason my father loves me, Jesus says, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Now, there are some words that I believe have been kind of corrupted by our culture, and authority, I think, is one of them. We don't like authority. We, we are incredibly suspicious of authority and submission. You know, what, what are they trying to get me to do? What, what's their agenda? But here we see Jesus uses authority to describe himself. You know, Jesus could easily look out onto the world and say, you know what? I see a bunch of, bunch of punks. I see a bunch of punks that don't follow me. They don't recognize my voice. They're doing their own thing. And he, he could easily just take us out. He could easily at least ignore us. But notice he uses his authority and his power to die for his sheep. His authority is a self-sacrificing kind of authority. This is a different kind of authority than what the world offers. It's really the kind of authority that hopefully everybody in this room would welcome. Now, Jesus' authority also means that he was never surprised by what happened to him. 
Right? He, he didn't get to the cross and all of a sudden, what, what happened? How did I get here? You know, oops. Jesus never says oops. Jesus willed and welcomed his own death. He chose to lay his life down. That's a reference to his crucifixion. He chose to take up his life, which is a reference to the resurrection. Now, this means that Jesus was never a victim. Jesus was never a victim. We should never feel sorry for Jesus. I watched The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie about, you know, the the death of Jesus. When I was probably early 20s, I was in Jackson, Mississippi with some friends. We were on a service project. The first time we watched it, it was, as you know, intense. I remember watching and thinking, Jesus could use a hug right now. You know, he's getting wrecked. Jesus doesn't need a hug. Jesus never needs a hug. Jesus chose this path. He willed his own death. The one person who has all authority, yes, over every molecule in this universe, that same person chose to lay his life down for his sheep. He didn't have to, but that's exactly what he did. So in this passage, we've seen the good shepherd sacrifice his intimacy, his extraordinary reach, and his self-sacrificial authority. But really, as we look at this passage, there's one central piece to Jesus' leadership. There's one thing that everybody else, everything else kind of revolves around, and that's his substitutionary sacrifice. I mean, think about it for a second. It, we, we can't have intimacy with Jesus. We can't have a true knowledge with our good shepherd apart from his substitutionary sacrifice for us. We can't have this beautiful unity and diversity that is found in the global church apart from, apart from his substitutionary sacrifice for sins. Everything really does revolve around and come back to Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is unique. In Jesus, we have a leader who is truly invested, who is truly interested in his sheep like no other. In just a moment, we're going to have the privilege of taking communion. And communion is a a symbolic meal that Jesus ordained for us, for his sheep, to remind us that Jesus, the good shepherd, laid his life down for his sheep. Now, if you are not now one of Jesus' sheep, if you haven't received the good news of Jesus Christ with faith and with repentance, then I want to ask you to participate this morning by passing the plates and the juice, by reflecting on the Good Shepherd and praying quietly. I'm going to pray right now, and then I'm going to have Kent Forkner come and lead us in communion. Let's pray together. Father, we worship the good shepherd this morning. We worship the good shepherd because he has laid down his life for his sheep. And as the sheep, Lord, we we recognize that we are dependent and dumb and needy. And we so need you to direct and lead us. 
We praise you, Father, for the great sacrifice that you've made for us to reconcile sinners like us to you. We ask that you would work in our hearts and lives this week as we reflect upon the good shepherd, the one who is tender, the one who is strong, the one who meets our every need. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.